One of Cleveland's most notorious criminals has died, Anthony Sowell. It's a story we'll be talking about on this episode of This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with my colleagues, R. Johnston, Jen Cahoon, and Chris Murnowski. Happy Tuesday. Good morning. Good morning. Morning. Before we begin, I want to make a quick statement. I want to correct something from our Friday episode. As originally published, it said Dennis Kucinich took a significant amount of money from First Energy as he explores a campaign for mayor. Neither Kucinich nor his campaign received money from First Energy. Our discussion was about a donation he received from somebody that was closely aligned with First Energy, and we did edit that incorrect statement out of the episode. But if you heard it, we wanted you to know that we misstated that and we regret it. Okay, let's begin. So does the death of Anthony Sowell of a terminal illness raise more questions about the utility of the death penalty? This is a case where he was fighting the execution for years, for years now, without any resolution, and in the end dies. He had a life sentence. And the money we've spent trying to get him to execution is probably astronomical. We're going to figure it out. Is it a waste? Should should people like him just be sentenced to live out their days in, in a high security prison, save the money and and let them have their miserable lives to the end? That's what struck me about this is all this effort. And in some ways, I think, Chris, you mentioned he cheats death. Right. I, I think it, it's 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 an astronomical amount of money that we spend on these things and and they get so many automatic appeals for their cases. And it's, it's weird. There's the, as you mentioned before the podcast, a kind of puritanical streak that still kind of runs down this country that still has this eye for an eye mentality about people who kill people. And, and we've found that, that the death penalty is largely ineffective in dissuading people from committing crimes. It's a, it's a huge financial burden. And, and, you know, and in recent years, we've, we've (laughs) discovered that it's basically you know, torture and, and, and maybe, maybe violates some of the tenets of our constitution. But, but in, in this case, it's, it's easy to sort of hear the argument that, that these monster people, people who are monstrous like Anthony Sowell deserve everything they got coming to them. Well, well, he got it. You know, he, he lived the rest of his life behind bars with no realistic hope of ever being released or, or having his cases overturned. And he ultimately died. And, and at the end of the day, you know, nobody got to pull a switch or press a button to do it. And yet we spent untold amount of money litigating this issue. And, and I think, you know, it, it's, it's fa- to listen to Mike DeWine over the past couple of years talk, you know, as, as he's been governor, you can tell that there's really no zeal in him to continue using the death penalty. I, it just, he's, he's every, every excuse to, to delay an execution Every attempt to to say, like, we don't have the proper means to do this is all kind of chipping away at this for the future. Well, in, in his case, and, and I salute him for it because he lives by his creed. I think it's he's never said it, but it's pretty clear. It's a religious thing that you don't take a life. And, and while he's never come right out and said it, it's pretty clear in his what he's not saying that he thinks that way. And look, you said something that was kind of key to this thing. He was never going to get out if you do have a death penalty. It is designed for people exactly like Anthony Sowell, who exulted in cruelty and torment. What he did, it was it was like one of the worst periods in Cleveland history because this monster was our own. And 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 he 
preyed on the the people that that many didn't miss and it, and his case showed how police ignored the the missing women cases because they were poor or or had had some crime in their background but but he was never going to get out i mean this was not jimmy you know jimmy demora we're going to be talking about him later is trying to say i didn't do it there was never any doubt that he did it it's just was he going to get executed that's what all the money ended up being spent on was should he get the death penalty and you know in the end he cheated the death penalty he died but he had a life sentence and so it raises it raises significant questions chris you're you're mapping out some stories for the week to, to kind of look back at the meaning of that case right i think one of the most important things that came out of this case was really illustrating the the deep deficiencies within these women's experience with going to police and and talking to police about what had happened you know i mean this was a a clear-cut example of of somebody who who should have been in jail and not allowed to continue to kill and i you know what i i think what's what's amazing about this case is is that you know this happened long before i came here but it was it was one of the things as as somebody who who covered crime and courts and as a journalist before he came here, like I knew this about this city and, and I knew about Castro before I came to the city and, and these, these things that had happened here. And it's, it's interesting to see how it changed the culture of how this community approaches missing, missing persons cases about the, the massive sea change that occurred eventually when, with the untested rape kits. I, I mean, so much, so much can be tied back to this this sort of major deficiency within this police department and yeah, and law enforcement community. I'm glad you mentioned the rape case. Layla Tassi, our columnist, did extraordinary work on the on the Sowell case, and that was the precursor for the work she and some others did on the on the rape kits. If you're like Chris and you weren't as aware of of the day to day of this, we did post a story overnight that has links to the original coverage in the plain dealer back when it happened. And more importantly, it has links to profiles that reporters, Margaret Bernstein and Stan Donaldson did on each of the victims. We were very proud of that work when we did it because everybody was talking about so well, and we wanted to focus on the the victims and the, these, the stories that Stan and Margaret did really brought them to life. Check them out on cleveland.com. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Can Cuyahoga County really have a plan to vaccinate teachers that is thoughtful, organized, and efficient? Jane Cahoon, I cannot believe those words are coming from my mouth, (laughs) given how this has gone. But everything I can tell about this plan is that it's great. And I'm now hearing from senior citizens saying, why didn't they make that plan for me? (laughs) Right. They really do have quite the plan. It's the Educational Service Center of Northeast Ohio that's going to vaccinate 23,000 Cuyahoga County school staff against the coronavirus, and they're doing this in their building in Independence, which is centrally located over the course of about two weeks. Giant Eagle is their partner, and and they plan to vaccinate over 1,900 school staff a day. I'm not good at math, but I guess it breaks down to like 240 an hour and 20 vaccines in five minutes. They're going to have a team of about 25 on site to administer them, and they're going to run each day except Sunday from February 10th to February 24th. And then when it comes time for the second dose, the ESC is going to repeat that that whole process. They have a bunch of conference rooms in various sizes, so they can do like a flow of people into various stations 
and keep everybody socially distant. Um, and each school is going to have like a window of time for the vaccinations based on the number of staff that are coming in to get the vaccines. And, and that's what kind of determines everything is built around those numbers. So they could scale up that window like in five minute increments, depending on how many people they're bringing in. They're, they're going to go in through the back of the building. They go through a registration and, and symptom check before they get vaccinated. And then there's a waiting area after they're vaccinated in case of any side effects where they where they have to wait. They're going to have EMS on on standby. So and no standing around in in hallways. So, yeah, it looks like they, they've got it pretty well organized. I, I, you know, we learned of this, of course, because my wife's a teacher. When she told me about it, I'm like, get out of town. They're not going to do this that organized. But it is. It's it's which which I am now hearing from people saying, well, wait a minute. If you can do that for the teachers, why can't you do that for all of us? And that's a damn good question. We've been asking over and over again, why don't we have in this densely populated county a central place where people can go? I, the agony people are going through, I guess, as the age got down. Is it down to 65 this week? I yeah, I believe it's 65 this week. Yeah. So there's no vaccine available. And so they're mad at the teachers. It's like the teachers are getting my vaccine. But but what they're really mad about is they don't have a path. Everywhere they call says we're not taking appointments. We can't do it. And so now they're coming to us saying, can you help? Can you help? And the question is, if you can do it for the teachers, why can't we do it for everybody? Jane Coon, maybe we should pose that question today when we're at the governor's briefing. Yes. Excellent question. <laughs> OK, we'll see how it goes. But this seems like a model. And if the military gets involved and you get the National Guard going, maybe we'll get some efficiency. As Mike DeWine keeps saying, we got to pay tribute to this. There's not enough vaccine. I mean, can he I, has said repeatedly it's a supply problem, and he's right. There's not enough. Can I just add, add something this here? Asking, it kind of sucks if you have family who live elsewhere in the country where they're doing this in a in a much more efficient and organized way because it, I, I'm starting to hear stories from people, from family members and friends who live in other parts of the nation, and I just I keep hearing stories about these these drive up clinics and these all of these things that that are happening elsewhere that I think to myself, why? So maybe this is a, this is a light that it will sort of maybe guide us through the rest of all of this. So, so good for the County, good for the teachers. I, this is, this is, I think good news for everybody at the it's end. It's a great, a great sign. We'll see how it goes. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How is Ohio's Republican congressional delegation working to help people out who might be victims of unemployment fraud? Chris Ranowski, I did a piece over the weekend about how my my personal experience with fraud provoked our question to the governor about unemployment fraud, which exposed the degree to which it was. Before we asked that question, nobody knew that more than half of the pandemic unemployment claims were fraud, which I'm now wondering, has all our reporting about the unemployment numbers been false because of all the fraud? We'll have to check that out. But we did hear from a lot of people as a result of that column, who've had similar fraud experiences. It was overwhelming. I still haven't gotten back to everybody. So how is the congressional delegation working to help those people? Right. So they're, they're basically saying that the IRS should take steps to make sure that the victims of this fraud are not penalized for claims that were falsely filed in their names. A letter signed by 39 GOP members of Congress, including all 12 of Ohio's delegation, comes amid reports that a significant number of jobless claims, particularly for payments that were made out of this pandemic unemployment assistance, were fraudulent. I, 
I think the number was $330 million in PUA payments, right? Am I correct in that? Sounds about right. Sounds about right. So that's a lot of money. I mean, that's a that's a significant amount of money. And that's just for Ohio, I believe. So the the state had 1.4 million PUA claims that have been flagged as fraudulent. And what's weird is that I think some people did not find out that they were defrauded until they got their tax documents for their unemployment. You know, there was really no system for people to find out if, if they had been defrauded. They only set up a hotline that you could call to say, hey, I think I've been defrauded. So so there really wasn't a, a, a decent way for people to even know that this had happened to them. The IRS has said that. And there still isn't. Right. Me, still, I think. Still, <laughs> and I don't know that. I don't know that they're. I mean, are they working on something? I think they addressed this last week. We've posed so yeah. many questions to them. Jeremy Pelzer has been waiting for answers on a number of questions. Could I just say one thing? Though? I think 1.4 million was the number of PUA claims. And of those, I think about 800,000 were flagged as fraudulent. This is all from memory. So I could yeah, be wrong. It was. But- it was just under 800,000. Look, yeah. and we got a million questions and they won't. Why Ohio will not create a voter registration style database so you can see if somebody has filed a claim in your name is mind boggling because people are nervous. I've heard from all sorts of people with different different symptoms. You know, some people have gotten the prepaid cash card in the mail under somebody else's name at their address. And then other people didn't get the cards, but they got the one ninety nine or one oh nine nine forms that say they got the money, but it's not in their name. It's in somebody else's name at their address. So it's raised the question, are the are the scammers rifling mailboxes after they file it? And nobody can answer. That's what Jeremy's after. What is the mechanism by which these people get paid? Some people said when they used the PIN that they didn't request to look at their account, they found out-of-state banks that are attached to their account. So it might be direct deposit money. But how does that happen? Yeah, I, that's the burning question that I have is like, where was the entry point for all of this? Like, was did all this information come from an unemployment database that got hacked? I mean, is do we know that? I mean, I think this is an international scheme. I think there are fraudsters out there all around the world who are tutoring each other on how to how to carry this out. So we're seeking more information on that. To me, this underlines a very... I mean, there was a story yesterday out of Florida where a water system got hacked and somebody remotely added chemicals to drinking water. I think we have to really take this infrastructure issue, this internet technology infrastructure issue, not just highways and airports. I I think we have an infrastructure problem when it comes to government websites. And our unemployment system has been an illustration of that for a full calendar year. Except there's a fail-safe problem here. If if you file for unemployment in my name, my employer gets notified and sends an OPEC saying, no, no, he's still working. Although I did hear from somebody whose employer did that, and the unemployment people paid the claim anyway, and then they got the form. So they were pretty livid. The number of people I've heard from about this who were so angry at the lack of response, it, you, you know, Chris, you're right. From the beginning of the pandemic, this system was flagged as a disaster. And Mike DeWine and John Houston have not fixed it. Shame on them. They've had 11 months. Fix it. Or or go to Tom Hayes. We've talked about him in the past. <laughs> he fixed it in 2003. He knows how to fix it again. Bring him back and let him do it. I, again, I think what's amazing is that you have a political party that for decades have has largely ignored and undermined the unemployment system in this state and states across this country. and 
now that more than just poor people have to rely on this, suddenly they're hearing concerns about this system. It's not like are they? I, I, are they hearing? I mean, it? I mean, hopefully they're hearing it because I think <laughs> well, they're I think bringing all, in all these private sector people who are supposedly going to help them fix it. <laughs> yeah, but it, but again, it's it's they're they're hearing it. They're they're hearing about it from people who in a normal year would not have any reason to come to a lawmaker and say, Hey, I'm not getting unemployment. You know, it's, it's easy to ignore this stuff when it's, I mean, you can connect this back to so well, it's easy to ignore people on the low rungs of society that are easy to dismiss. And, and you say, Oh, well, if you, if you really want to get off, you, you know, get a job and unemployment won't be an issue. You know, I mean, that's the reality that we've had to live with for decades. And, and now we're seeing that these systems need to work before they're you overtax them with more people than have ever used it before. And, okay. you know, there's no other greater illustration of that than our public health system. So maybe look at these things, take them serious, put money into them so they work when we need them. That's All the right. lesson. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why are the people so exercised about things in tiny Woodmere that they might vote to oust the majority of the village council in a recall? Laura Johnston, this is one of those tiny towns that that constantly is in the news. It's like Lindale. And this one is pretty wacky. It involves chickens and a dispute over a sidewalk. Yeah, this is a host of issues uh, in this tiny village, 208 acres, 900 citizens that live there. Most of us just know it as, you know, the Eaton shopping center with the Apple store. But they're being asked to recall four of the seven members of the, the village council. So there's an attorney and a Woodmere resident of nine years named Rachel Cab Efron. She's leading this recall effort. She and her supporters have dubbed themselves the Woodmere Project, alluding to the Lincoln Project, trying to keep Donald Trump from being reelected. They only needed 45 signatures to put the recall of four people, Council President Jennifer Mitchell Early and three council members. They have a special election February 23rd, and you vote on each one. So some of them could survive this recall while others don't. But what's really fascinating is when I heard chickens, I was like, oh, you know, there's been a lot of disputes in suburbs about allowing chickens in the backyard zoning. But this is just like one family's chickens that the parents got them kind of entertain their kids during the pandemic. They got six chicks. They converted a playhouse into a fenced in coop. But the chickens kept getting away. Neighbors complained and people took sides. They said the council wasn't sympathetic enough to the family who eventually had to get rid of these chickens. Then there's the sidewalk where the idea is the sidewalk won't cost the village anything to build it. And it would keep people safe between the west side of Brainerd Road from Chagrin Boulevard to the village of Orange. Obviously, you know, that's been built up along there, but um, it's $265,000 in state and county grants. But some people are afraid that the village is going to have to shell out money that won't cover it all. And so there's been a dispute from that. Those are the two of them. What, what are they? What, what, what is the deal with? I, I'm, I'm, I failed to see the annoyance with chickens. I mean, we've, I've been to Key West. They, it's kind of cute. What, why would you get so opposed if a chicken got loose and was walking in your yard? What's the issue there? Jen Cohen, you've had some experience with chickens. Do you find them to be nuisances? We have them next door. In fact, I love getting the eggs. They're wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> They're entertaining. I like hearing them cackle and so forth. There's as, as somebody who lived on a farm as a kid, I will say that there is a waste issue with chickens that that might be a little disgusting. But for the most part, they are you're, like Jane said, they're kind of a joy to have around. 
I mean, once you get used to the, the roosters crowing in the morning, I think you're, <laughs> you, you know, you know, that's 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 one thing. But they don't right. allow those They you know, they all have to be hens, I think. Yeah. And so I just I hate people and it, you, 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 you move back to small towns to complain about every. Well, and there's one there. more issue too that they have. And the village website has been largely dormant because there's an impasse between the mayor and council that prevents changes to be made. So they actually had to cancel some meetings because they couldn't update their calendar. So this is one of the other ones. All right. Well, we'll know soon whether the recall is successful and they get rid of four of their seven members of council. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How soon will we know whether the gerrymandering reforms Ohio voters adopted a few years back will work to bring order to drawing lines for the districts? Jane Cahoon, Rich Exner's reporting on gerrymandering is often credited as one of the chief sparks for why this got done. People used his exhaustive research and his demonstrations of how bad it was as the science behind changing it. But I've always been a little suspicious that <laughs> this isn't going to be as good as we think it is. When will well, we Well, I think your suspicions might be well-founded only, you know, because they ended up with a compromise here. You're right. Rich is a superstar. He pointed out all the, you know, the egregious gerrymandering that we had here. And there was a citizen's effort to put it on the ballot. But you know, to head that off, they came up with this compromise and the lawmakers, you know, put this constitutional amendment on the ballot. So, yes, this year we're going to have new census figures, which finally I think will come out in April. And then we should know whether Ohio, number one, is going to lose one of its 16 seats, which we think it probably will. But then we're going to find out how this new process plays out. Right now, we've got 12 of those 16 seats that are reliably Republican. Thanks to that last redistricting in 2010 that was controlled by the GOP. And, you know, that's where we've got the Democrats packed into these four districts and the others primarily Republican. That's how we got like the snake on the lake district from stretching from Toledo to Cleveland. And we got Jim Jordan's duck shaped district that goes from like Lorraine County down to central Ohio and then west, you know, to almost Indiana. And as I said, those are two of the more egregious examples. But after this ballot issue got approved in 2018, it was a constitutional amendment. They, the rules are stricter. They're aimed at fairer districts. They, they have to be more geographically compact, and they have to have some buy-in from the minority party in order for them to be good for 10 years. But, you know, they, they might not get there. They, if, if their first attempt fails to get 60% approval from both the State House and Senate, and that must include half of each chamber's minority party lawmakers. Then the map making heads to this smaller commission made up of the governor and the state auditor and the secretary of state. Anyway, I'm getting a little bit into the weeds, but you know, if they go through this whole process and they still can't get the minority party buy-in, then the legislature can go ahead and pass like four-year maps. And I think they just need a, a simple majority. So the real question is, is there going to be room for shenanigans? And I'd say, of course. And I would, in fact, expect it, you know, based on Ohio Republican Party chairman or then at the time, Jane Timken told Andrew Tobias recently in an interview that I think it's going to be very difficult to draw Democratic seats, you know, and I don't see the map changing all that much, which, you know, you're a lot of supposed people... to draw Democratic seats. That's not what you're supposed <laughs> to do. I mean, that, the whole mindset is right there. That's not the goal. 
The only thing that gives me a little bit of confidence is this would stop the Jordan district and the Captor district because because of the way they they drew those. They're so ridiculous. I mean, this requires you to to contain it. And it's a little yeah, you bit. You can't split, you know, they minimize the splits of like cities and counties and so forth. You, yeah, you can't cut and slice like that. You've got to pretty much do contiguous counties. And while there will always be games, you remember what we had Rich do as soon as this passed. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. The yes. Best case scenario. What's the worst case scenario? And the worst case scenario was still pretty bad. Yeah, like Rich actually tried his hand at, at using these new rules to to draw maps, one in which he tried to severely gerrymander it as possible and another, you know, to draw fair districts. This bad map ended up with nine districts that were still rated safe for Republicans, four safe Democratic districts and two that maybe were competitive. And in the good map, I think he got like six competitive districts and maybe five Republican and four Democratic, something like that. So the the idea here is competitive. You're right. It's not to make a Republican district or make a Democratic district. So, you know, this is all being watched nationally because the Democrats have such a narrow majority in the U.S. House. So a lot of people are watching this to see how it's going to play out. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. What does Jimmy DeMora contend in his plea to the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn the corruption conviction that has the former Cuyahoga County Commissioner serving 28 years in a federal prison. Chris Ranowski, we've been waiting for this. It's like his final shot, his moon shot. Does he have a shot? Well, if you have paid attention to Jimmy DeMora's long, drawn-out appeals process, the argument that he's using isn't that new. He's making the argument, basically, that what what he did did not constitute, and I think they call it an official act, of receiving a gift in exchange for, you know, political favors. And and I think the argument that his attorneys are making in this brief that was filed to the Supreme Court to hear whether or not to overturn his bribery related convictions is is that that Frank Russo, the former county auditor, did much worse and was punished to a much lesser degree. And and so, you know, Demora Demora's whole argument is sort of based on the fact that he he really didn't do anything wrong that that what he did was you know he helped people that that he helped <laughs> he he helped make the the wheels of government work for people and that that he was asked and 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 given things in exchange for that help and and you know there was a supreme court ruling that came out a couple of years ago that kind of blurred the definition of what an official act means and and so it gave him kind of this very narrow pathway to an appeal victory that that he's 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 been trying to sort of get through the appeal system these for All the past right. year or so. But let's remind people: if you listen to the recordings, it's clear there was a quid pro quo. That trip to Las Vegas was the the conversations were in exchange for stuff. I mean, for him to argue he didn't do anything wrong, that's just preposterous. Did he deserve a twenty eight year sentence? You could debate that. That's he got hammered pretty hard. The thought was. When you abuse the public trust, you should get slammed with 16 tons so that future people don't do it. And the let's face it, the uh, reason Russo got a lesser sentence, he ended up cooperating and turning on him. But I I just I I could see them saying that there were trial errors and making him get retried, that that the judge kept things out that would have been helpful to him. The Supreme Court could do that. Right. For him to say. 
you know, I was convicted of things that were lawful. It's like, come on, man. We all heard the, and, and we have them all on our site. So if anybody has any doubt, go back and listen to his phone conversations, especially with regard to that trip to Las Vegas. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Good conversation. Dave Campbell, our sports manager, just sent a note out that the former Browns coach, Marty Schottenheimer, has died. So I'm sure there is a story up on our site already. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Chris. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We will be back tomorrow. Tomorrow.